morning. Uh, my name's Brad Van Paul. Like John mentioned, our regular preaching pastor, Dan Deckard, is on vacation this week. It's actually their, uh, Deanna and Dan's 20th uh, wedding anniversary. And so uh, I'm one of the guys that preaches one time a year, usually when Dan's on vacation. And I'm not going to lie, preaching one time a year is, is about enough for me. And from what people tell me, it's more than enough for you. So, so uh, anyway, I want to introduce my message by sharing a couple of personal experiences that, that illustrate the topic. Uh, one of the experiences happened at the hands of one of my best friends in college. And the other experience um, started a few years ago, but it ended relatively recently, and that was at the hands of a, a, a vice president at the company where I work. So the first experience, um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a, in a Christian home. And I'm telling the, the story much shorter than, than it actually is, but around uh, mid way through my senior year in high school, for various reasons, I got caught up in what I call a heavy party way of life. My, uh, instead of calling it peer pressure, my buddies and I used to call it beer pressure. And uh, that continued for several years, probably till about halfway through my junior year in college. And then um, just I felt empty, not at peace, I felt conflicted. And God began drawing me to himself. And it wasn't an overnight transformation like some people have, but in kind of the spiritual equivalent of baby steps, I did try to start walking with the Lord, and my behavior changed. And in the spiritual equivalent of baby talk, as best as I could explain it to my, to my party friends, I tried to talk about my new faith, uh, my relationship with the Lord, and, and why my behavior was changing. Well, during that time period, one day in particular sticks out in my memory. It was the first uh, snow-melting spring day of uh, after a long South Dakota winter, and I was walking with three of my buddies up the ramp to the, uh, the indoor sports complex there at the University of South Dakota. We were going to go play basketball. And my, my friends were reminiscing about some wild Friday night party. And suddenly my best friend stops and he spins around and he gets in my face and he says, yeah, before you got all weird and religious on us. And now as an old guy, that doesn't sound so serious, but, but back then, that kind of constant mocking and pressure, it, it was really hard on me. And I didn't have these words to articulate it at the time, but that was, that was basically my first official experience of, of suffering for being a Christian. Now, like I said, the second ex, uh, example happened a little bit more recently, or it, it ended more recently anyway. Um, several years ago, the only way I can describe it is that God put it on my heart to, to get a seminary degree. So for uh, five years, I'd use all of my annual paid time off to attend classes, and the rest of it I did uh, online. And um, it's a lot of work, having a full-time job and working on uh, a seminary degree, um, trying to balance that with um, 
family and being an elder at the church and stuff like that. So to better balance all of that, um, I passed over some opportunities that were offered to me at, at my work. And I, and I purposely asked for a transfer into this one team that I knew um, the work wasn't very exciting, but I knew my hours would be more predictable, and, uh, and I knew I'd have a little bit more support in, in order to try and to, to balance my time. Well, my coworkers, I work in Marin County, by the way, where every um, endangered species except Christians is trying to be saved. <laughs> And so my coworkers already knew me. I was the, the only token Christian in the department. But going to seminary and passing over opportunities for more visibility in, in the company, even by their standards, was viewed as, as just foolish. There was no other word really then. They just thought I was being a fool. And in various ways, some of them told me in more or less so many words. But there was an immediate and a marked change in how the vice president of, of our department started to treat me after that. Um, he basically systematically tried to humiliate me into quitting. Um, some of you probably uh, will recognize the reference to the character Milton in the movie Office Space. Um, I think it's been a long time since I watched it. I think the edited for TV version may be okay for adults. Don't rent the DVD because if I remember the it's pretty coarse language and stuff on the DVD. But anyway, there's a character Milton in the movie Office Space who's kind of the corporate doofus. And uh, every time he comes to work in the morning, the boss has moved his desk someplace else. And, he's, and it's always in a worse location and it's a smaller desk. So eventually, He's, he's the only guy sitting by himself under the water pipes in the, in the basement. And when Milton tries to talk to his coworkers, they either talk around him or through him or, or over him like he's not even there. So rather than tell all the stuff that this VP did to me, which just kind of comes across as whining, let's just say that for three years very directly and maybe another three, three years, um, in sort of a lingering way, I became our department's Milton. And even my coworkers started to distance themselves from me because they didn't want to be guilty by association and appear friendly to the, to the Christian guy that the VP was trying to get rid of. Now, in this case, I wasn't trying to take a moral stand for anything. I was just making some decisions based on what I felt the Lord was leading me to do, but I ended up suffering for it um, as a Christian. So doing what is right or doing what you believe the Lord is leading you to do is, and the, and the uh, backlash that you may receive for that, that's not just a peer pressure issue for young people anymore. I chose this topic back in June, but in perfect timing for a sermon illustration with the whole Chick-fil-A a situation that's been happening over the last couple weeks. And regardless of how you feel about all of that, I, I think the one thing that we can agree on is what is what triggered it um, is that Mr. Kathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, made some statements that represent a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, represented his relationship with the Lord, 
And he was not even making it to the general public. He was making those statements to his to his um, church media. And the you saw the backlash that resulted from that. So that kind of stuff has been going on to Christian students in colleges and even uh, the lower grades in public school maybe from professors and teachers and classmates making fun of mocking uh, the Christian students. That's been going on for a long time. But this, this type of backlash that we saw around Chick-fil-A, that's just going to increase more and more in the future. And it's not going to just be something that you watch on TV, but it's almost certain, I would think, that, that all of us are going to experience that personally if you haven't already experienced that. But even though, for example, the Chick-fil-A situation was much more public and dramatic, many Christians suffer silently every day if they're married to an unbelieving spouse who doesn't support their, their faith. So not according to me, I'm still working through this as I'm going to work through it with you today, but according to God's word, and I agree with it and proclaiming it. What's the, the one word that is used to describe how we should respond to this backlash for being a Christian or for, taking, for doing what you believe the Lord is leading you to do? The one word that best describes what our response should be to the people that are causing the backlash is respect. Now, I expect that this Point, you have a lot of questions, and maybe you're a little bit skeptical, and that's that says I think that's a normal response. So that's what we're going to be looking at today in First Peter chapter two, is what's the only realistic and reasonable reason why our main and primary response when there's backlash against Christians for doing what's right, that our main response should be respect. Teaching respect ironically comes from uh, the Apostle Peter, who was uh, famous for saying whatever popped into his head. Um, but now Peter's probably about the same age as me, maybe a little bit older, so he's been walking with the Lord for, for 30 years. He has that kind of life experience of following in Jesus' footsteps. And in, if I were a more than once a year preacher, this would have been a three-part series, and Part one would have been on uh, Second Peter, or rather, First Peter, chapter two, verses thirteen through seventeen, and there Peter teaches that we are to respect politicians from the federal level down to the local level. All of a sudden, your Bibles got interesting, didn't they? And he even says that we are to respect. He even says that we are to respect the king, which is a remarkable thing for him to say because the king at the time of Peter was the Roman emperor Nero, who was infamous for his persecution of Christians. And then my part three would have been from chapter three, verses one through seven, where Peter teaches that 
If a woman is married to an unbelieving husband, and the husband never ever wants to hear her talk about her faith, but he says not to be concerned about trying to force him into conversations about the gospel, but rather to win him over without any words by her respectful lifestyle towards him. But in the, uh, so this, that would have been parts one and three if I preached more than once. So I'm preaching on the middle part because it serves as, as sort of a paradigm for a Christian in every situation. In the verses that we're looking at today, this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Peter says that even slaves are to respect their masters. Now, this doesn't mean that God endorses slavery. It doesn't mean that any more than God endorsed the Emperor Nero for persecuting and killing Christians for reasons that are probably only understood and known to God, he allows evil, wicked human institutions for a season, and he even works through those wicked institutions. So again, I think that what Peter is, uh, the reason that this is in the scriptures for us is not to endorse slavery, or not to say that it's not an evil thing, but a Christian in a slave situation was essentially in a worst-case situation for dehumanization, for marginalization, and for being humiliated. And Peter kind of hints at that this is a paradigm for us because I think it's in verse 16 or 17 where he says, live as a free man and live as a slave of God. Now, it's hard for us to imagine, but just like with African slavery here in, the, in, the, in our history, slaves in Peter's day were, were literally property. So they had the same rights as, as this podium. It, they, were, they were viewed literally as property. And that was in, ingrained into their society so much that they basically thought that you know, slaves were not even capable of any moral decisions on their own. So the fact that Peter speaks directly to the slaves was very countercultural. People just didn't speak directly to them like that. And Peter treats them with dignity by speaking to them human to human, Christian brother to Christian brother and sister. And he even entrusts them, you'll see this when we come to verse 22, to try to whet your appetite a little bit. He even entrusts these slaves, the Christians that are in a slave situation, to best understand and model the deepest theological truth that he talks about in his letter, if not one of the deepest theological truths in the New Testament. And he chose to reveal this to slaves. He could have uh, told it to the elders because he writes to them in chapter 5, but, but he doesn't. And we'll see why when we get to verse 22. But then comes the instruction in verse 18. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, baked into this word submit is kind of the idea of rank like in military ranks. But if I were to 
put the word submit, if I were to paraphrase it and put it in our modern context, it would basically mean something like, go ahead and let those in authority have their top box on the org chart on the PowerPoint slide. You know how when every six months there's always a reorg at work is how it seems to go these days? And the first thing that goes up when they're trying to tell you, uh, when they, they mistake vision for org charts. Org charts are almost always the first thing that are shown. And this word submit that says, go ahead and let them have the top box on the org chart. Respect the rank and the position that God has put leaders into, whether they deserve or earned that position or not. Go ahead and, and, and respect the role that God has allowed and placed them into. Now, that's easy enough to do if you have a good boss who will take the time to actually listen to you, factor in that you're a real human being, just like he or she is. But Peter says that we're to submit even to a, a harsh master. You know, the, the, um, the kind that no matter how hard you bust your tail, you never meet their expectations. It's never quite good enough. It's never quite fast enough. Or they just don't thank you for it. They don't acknowledge any of the amount of, of work that was put into it. Or they really just, they just have no, no, no time to listen to you. Um, you're supposed to know what they want done, but they're, they're too important to spend any time actually helping to remove the obstacles that might be in your way. Even, if you can even figure out what it is they want you to do. Or worse, sometimes you even might have a pathological boss, somewhat like the one that was trying to systematically humiliate me, or one that my boss or my, uh, my wife had one time. Uh, she would wait until 4.45 p.m. on the Friday before she knew she was scheduled for vacation and would give her long assignments that were due right away. So it's, it's even to these kind of people in authority that Peter, that Peter teaches us to respect. Now, at this stage, I'd still expect a lot of, I wonder where this is going, right? Um, and I would expect um, there to be a lot of questions, a lot of skepticism, maybe even some disagreement yet at this point. So let's move from the instruction to respect to take a look at the reason why we should respect. If I only preach once a year, it makes me a cotton mouth, so I'll be drinking a lot. Rather than hide it, I'm just going to enjoy it. So verse 19 says, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, at first glance, this verse looks pretty straightforward. It looks like what it's saying is that 
if you're suffering for doing good and you think to yourself, um, I'm going to endure this for the sake of, of God, that this is commendable before God. In other words, um, he's kind of proud of you. Like when a, um, when a child um, sticks, you know, sticks it through a tough situation and they don't quit and mom and dad are proud of them for how they handled it and, and for not quitting. It sounds like that's what this verse is saying. And I think that that's part of that is in there. That, um, that in, in some aspect, when we're conscious of, of God and we're trying to be obedient to him, that that is, in a way, pleasing to him. But if you're suffering long term, is it really that much motivation to be told that, oh well, hang in there, God is, God is proud of you? Unfortunately, in this case, I think the translators have obscured the real reason and the only reasonable reason that we can respond with respect when we're mistreated. What this verse literally says, when translated literally is, it doesn't say it's commendable. It says, for this is grace, if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is grace before God. Now, that sounds very theological. That sounds like the kind of thing you'd expect a preacher at Parkway to say. But what does it mean exactly? And that's what I think Peter tries to expound upon in the next verse. In verse 21, he says, and referring to now suffering for doing good, so suffering for doing good, to this you were called. You were called to suffer for doing good. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, almost any other kind of theology or explanation that I could give for enduring suffering for doing uh, suffering for doing good we could probably rationalize it away somehow we could probably find some loophole we could probably find some other balancing statement in the bible that would help us to rationalize away why should i respect when i'm suffering for doing good but we can't rationalize away that christ suffered for you and he didn't deserve to suffer for you. And we didn't deserve to have him suffer for us. This is grace. This is the, the basic confession, the gospel, for us that are Christians. Peter says it maybe a little bit more directly in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. There he says, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So what this is, 
is saying is that it's, there's no value in and of itself to suffer for doing good unless it's God's will. And it's saying that sometimes, at least one time at least, it was God's will for someone to suffer for doing good. And that was, it was his will for his own son to suffer in our place. Sometimes the theological terms kind of get in our way a little bit, but just to simplify it some, Christ died for sin, the righteous, so he was the one who was right. He wasn't wrong. He was right. He died for the unrighteous, the unright ones the ones who were wrong, that's, that's us. So in a situation where one person is right and the mob is, the crowd is wrong, who deserves to suffer? The ones who are wrong, right? Correct, I mean. <laughs> but it was God's will that the one who was right or righteous suffer undeservedly in the place of the ones who were wrong, the unrighteous ones. This is grace. This is the confession we made probably the first day that we became Christian. And so, because it was God's will at least one time for one person to suffer undeservedly, it follows, going back now to our text, that to this we were called. It's God's will for us too, not to pay for sins, but in solidarity and in fellowship and in thankfulness and in honor and in worship, we're called to suffer with the one that suffered for us undeservedly, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, this word example, if you uh, had lived in Peter's day and you had little kids or you were kind of the equivalent of our kindergarten teacher, you would use this word example a lot because it's the exact word that they used for a stencil that little kids use to trace the letters of the alphabet. Remember in kindergarten, you've got the lined paper with the letter A, the big A, the little A, and you traced your big fat pencil over the letter A. They probably teach this in preschool now, but it was in kindergarten when I was a kid. And you trace the, the letter A, the, the big letter A, the little letter A to learn the letters of the alphabet. And so the significance of this, it's not saying that Jesus is an example or that he's one example. It's saying that Jesus is the only example. And we're called to trace the example of his life, to walk in his footsteps. So as a reminder of this grace uh, we've received, Peter, treat, uh, Peter retraces Jesus' footsteps in the following verses, verse 22. In verse 22 through 25, Peter not only retraces 
the footsteps of Jesus' life, at least the last few hours of his life. But he shows how these footsteps fulfilled a prophecy made in Isaiah 53, 700 years before it happened. And in that prophecy in Isaiah 53, a Savior was promised, but the Savior would not be a conquering warrior. The Savior would be a suffering slave. This is the only place in the New Testament, there's other allusions to Isaiah 53, but this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is directly identified as the suffering slave prophesied in Isaiah 53. And Peter chose to reveal this to Christians who themselves were slaves because he knew that they would understand. He knew that they would be encouraged, that their Savior was a suffering slave himself. And so by direct quotation and allusions to Isaiah 53, Peter retraces and interprets the trials of Jesus, meaning the the courtroom trials, his crucifixion, and then the resulting grace that we receive. So verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' trial was basically a sham. Even though it was priests and elders who were functioning as sort of the, the judge and the jury, they tried to, you know, bring forward false evidence, false witnesses. They, this is, again, the elders and the, and the priests who did this. They spit in his face. They slapped him. They hit him with their, they hit Jesus with their fists. But despite how he was treated, let me read to you how Jesus himself handled, or how Jesus handled himself. It'll be on the screen, so you don't need to turn there. But John chapter 18, this is the first courtroom trial with the priest and the elders. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied, I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? So, basically what Jesus is saying to them is, it's, it's actually sarcastic. He's saying, 
isn't this a trial? Aren't you guys supposed to have witnesses? Am I supposed to testify against myself? Doesn't the way this usually work is you guys come up with, with witnesses? Everything I did was in public. It should be easy enough to come up with, with witnesses. And what this shows is that there's nothing undignified in the way Jesus is handling himself. He's not cowering in the corner. He's not um, fearful. He's not striking back. He's not arguing. So the point is that responding with respect to someone who is mistreating you as a Christian doesn't mean that you have to cower in fear. It doesn't mean that you make yourself a doormat. It doesn't mean that you can't say anything back at all. But you can see from the way Jesus handled himself, there's, there's no sense of him being out of control. He's simply speaking the truth. He's calling attention to the error, trying to point out their own hypocrisy. But even that, he's doing it in a mostly matter-of-fact way. But even so, on another, in another trial later that day, Jesus also never felt any pressure to have to defend himself. When he was on trial before Pilate, it says in Matthew 27, but Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. So on the other hand, he felt no pressure to have to uh, try to defend everything that he was being accused of. When it seemed that there was kind of no point to trying to defend himself, when he realized that it was all a sham anyway, he was completely okay as well with, with not saying anything. It may help if we go back now to the text in Peter and we show how we normally tend to react in a way that Jesus didn't react. In verses 22 and 23, it implies that the normal way that people tend to react when they're under this type of pressure is with deceit, retaliation, and threats. Now, at first you might think, well, you know, hopefully as Christians we don't normally just outright lie. But deceit doesn't necessarily have to mean lying. What's more common for us to do is to exaggerate. We tell the story in such a way where we include the details and we emphasize the details in such a way that it makes the other person look especially bad. And we leave out the details, or we tell the things about our side of the story that has a tendency to make us look very saintly, yet quite humble about the whole situation. And I would say that most of us, we realize 
We don't call it exaggeration. But I think most of us realize when we're doing that. We realize when we're telling the story to someone else in such a way that it makes the other person look particularly bad and it puts us in the best, the best light. But exaggeration is a subtle form of deceit. And deceit is a subtle form then of, of sin. We also probably think that we don't ever go so far as to retaliate and make threats. Most of us are probably smart enough, even though we want to say something, to keep our mouth shut in front of a boss, for example, because we don't want to get ourselves fired or we don't want to make the situation worse than it is. So we don't say anything, but not because we respect that person. We don't say anything because we don't want to, we're afraid. And so what we do instead is we make these kind of uh, boastful, idle threats to coworkers or friends. Dude, I am so out of here. Uh, seriously, I've had enough. I, I mean, I'm done. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm out of here, man. As soon as my 401k vests, that's it. But as soon as my 401k vests, I'm out. As soon as I take that vacation in September, but then after that, I can't take any more of it. And you know that we do this, right? I have about an hour drive home. Every night it kind of traffic crawls along there on Highway 37. You wouldn't believe all the outstanding ways I've quit my job <laughs> on the way home. <laughs> I have some really good fantasy ways of how I would do it. <laughs> but can you even imagine Jesus venting to his disciples? I mean, we'd lose all, all respect for him. We wouldn't even believe in, in him as the son of God if, if he did that. Now, I want to make some balancing statements here. Granted, we're not the son of God. We're going to sin. I'm not trying to lay an undue guilt or burden upon you. I've tried to be kind of transparent about how I struggle with this myself. I also want to emphasize that although we were talking about this in a work context, this message really doesn't have that much to do with like employee-employer relationships. It's really not supposed to be about stuff with your boss. But that's just the place that we tend to resonate, resonate with it um, the most. The real point here is regardless of the situation that you find yourself in, where there's backlash for being a Christian, where there's backlash for doing what you believe the Lord would lead you to do, that our response is to be one of respect. Now, even Jesus had to do something. It says here in verse 23 that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I think Peter purposely chose this word entrusted because if we were to try and put it in today's context, it kind of means something like turn yourself into custody of the police. Now, 
normally you probably think, well, guilty people turn themselves into custody. But there could be a situation where an innocent person who's being falsely accused by a mob could turn themselves into custody of the police and the courts for safekeeping and for vindication. And that's the idea here, that even the Son of God turned himself into the custody of God the Father for safekeeping and for vindication. And likewise, we're to follow Jesus' example. When we find ourselves in these situations, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And I think it's, it's theologically okay. It might even be theologically preferable to think of yourself as turning yourself into the custody of Jesus himself because you know that he knows how it feels to suffer. And that's basically what I think the idea of verse 25 is, is that even when we're suffering, Jesus is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Souls doesn't mean disembodied spirit. To Hebrews, your soul meant your whole, your whole person. Now, this doesn't happen to me very often, um, and it didn't happen because of anything I did. But you remember the guy in my friend in college who called me the religious weirdo? Uh, I think it was late last year, maybe early this year, he found me on Facebook. And we had kind of, you know, stayed in touch for a couple of years after college, but then really had not had any contact for pretty much 30 years. And um, anyway, he found me on Facebook, and a few weeks ago, he posted the pictures of his baptism. And uh, in his posting, he gave public glory God. Um, and I kind of, you know, searched what church he's at there, and he's going to a, a really good uh, Bible teaching church in eastern Iowa. Now, he probably doesn't even remember what he said to me, and, and it doesn't matter. But whether it takes 30 years for a friend to be saved, or whether it takes 700 years for God to fulfill a prophecy, he's always working out his will. He's always working out his purposes. So when we trace Jesus' example of suffering for doing good, of enduring it, and responding with respect to those that are making our lives miserable, causing us to backfire, it brings glory and honor to God. And you never know when it leads it may lead an undeserving person to Christ, just like us, the undeserving people that were led to Christ. So let me ask, who's that unreasonable person in your life? Who is it that you do not respect? It's not something that I'm expecting really to get resolved right here and now, so much as you have the text to go back to now and to begin the process of calling to mind that Jesus suffered for us undeservedly. And in the same way, we're called to follow in his 
footsteps, suffering undeservedly, loving and respecting those that don't necessarily deserve it. So as the worship team comes back up, I'll close us in prayer, but then I also just want to allow a couple of minutes for you to pray silently, to begin um, taking that person that may be causing your life to be miserable, begin going to the Lord in prayer for that person and just for his grace to be at work in your life as well to endure. Father, this message would not make any sense at all if it were not for the fact that Jesus suffered for us. We owe our entire life. We owe our salvation. We owe our joy and our peace. We owe it all to the fact that it was your will Jesus to suffer undeservedly in our place. We are so Father, I pray that you, by your grace and by the presence of Jesus' spirit in our lives, that you would strengthen us to be able to endure. And above all, Father, when we find ourselves in these situations, help us to speak with respect. Help us to respond with respect. Help us to